Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The epigraph at the start of Alexander Horowitz's latest book is something many who've adopted an adult dog may have considered. Quote, not to have known him as a frisky young dog, to have missed his entire puppyhood, I don't feel just sad, I feel cheated. Horowitz is quoting National Book Award winner Sigrid Nunez, author of The Friend. Today, where we live, Alexander Horowitz, a dog researcher, joins us to talk about her latest book that explores puppyhood called The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. She takes readers to day one when they're born, long before puppies are weaned and ready to be adopted between eight and ten weeks, which happens to be peak cuteness time. When dogs transition into our families, we know nothing of their early development. Instead, we humans fixate on training versus learning how our dogs develop their personalities. Horowitz's book is a memoir. She adopts a puppy from the litter she follows, and readers learn how new dog Quid becomes a part of her family. Dog lovers, this episode is for you. What questions do you have for Horowitz about dogs' relationships with us? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us on Zoom, Dr. Alexander Horowitz, a professor at Barnard College and head scientist at its Dog Cognition Lab. She's also the author of several books. Again, I mentioned we'll be talking about The Year of the Puppy, her 2009 book, Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell, and Know, spent 65 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lucy. I'm glad to be here. Uh, you've also written about your other dogs, including adopting Upton, I believe at three and a half years old. I wanted to read uh, this quote. The sorrow of coming to know Upton was the great mystery of his life before us, of where those fears came from, and of not being able to reach back in time and make it right. So this book sets out to explore puppyhood from birth to when puppies are weaned from their mother. And later, we learn what you learned um, from observing your puppy. You also write that this is not an instruction book on how to train your puppy. Tell us more about the focus and, and why you got there with this particular book. Mm, yeah, just as you suggest, I, as somebody who's lived with dogs my entire life, had never known a puppy from their birth. I always said adopted dogs from shelters or rescue groups. And so I get them many months or in the case of Upton, many years into their lives. And you miss this extremely formative part of their life that we all assume kind of explains their behaviors, their personalities, who they are, how they became who they are. And so I wanted to, just for once, observe a dog who would come to live with our family from their birth and see them progress into themselves. Um, and at the same time, although we were adding a puppy to our family and it's really a memoir of that, I wanted to take a scientific angle on it and look at the science that we know is happening in early dog development 
along the way. So my gaze was both as parent, you know, a doctor and parent and as scientist on this little budding sprite who became a uh, quid. Uh, you talk about developmental psychologist Jean Piaget, uh, who played a role in your year of the puppy, because we know so much about how children develop. And throughout the book, you're contrasting what y you see with puppies and what we know um, with human children. Tell us more. Yeah, Piaget was the beginning of, in fact, many developmental psychologists who were interested in children professionally and how they become themselves and how they learn to become, you know, functioning members of society and who also were parents and so turned their gaze toward the children in their homes and sometimes, you know, putting them through little behavioral experiments and sometimes just taking elaborate notes on their behavior. A more recent author, Charles Ferniehow, who's a developmental psychologist in the UK, wrote a book called A Thousand Days of Wonder about the first three years of his daughter's life. And I thought this was a great model for looking at early dog development as well, sort of the living with and also observing. Um, it's such an intimate access that you have to your subject to have them in the house with you. So you ended up following a litter, but you also write of how you, you were able to see, I believe, uh, the birth of some of these pups. So tell us about that experience, what it was like for you. Yeah, I've, I did observe a number of litters and I got to see um, mostly on videos. I wasn't present for all of them, the uh, births, uh, because we don't know unless you induce a, a mom, you don't know when they're going to be born. And we didn't foster these moms and their pups. And the births are, if I'm sure there are some listeners who have overseen the births of puppies, really extraordinary because you have a, a mother dog who maybe isn't completely certain what is happening to her. And then suddenly when pups start to emerge, takes command of the situation and really is responsible for assisting every pup being birthed, these little moist, small smudges of fur, cleaning them off com completely so that they can breathe, consuming the placenta and, and any anything which was attaching them to her and then positioning them so that they can get to one of her nipples. And then there might be another one that follows it shortly thereafter. So she becomes a professional right away. And what you have are, in this case, there was a litter of 11 little pups who are born blind and deaf and barely able to move and completely dependent on their mom. Mm. And it's amazing uh, as you chronologically share with readers what you observe from week one to, to week eight and how they change. I like the description of uh, sweet potatoes. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about, um, in the book, you also write about the Superdog program. So for our listeners who are unaware of this, uh, it's a military program and there's ways that uh, the way that the puppies are handled that can impact um, them later. Can you explain? Exactly. This was actually a program of our government uh, many years ago um, who were interested in developing the best, uh, most adapted working dogs. And they basically created a procedure of handling dogs when they're puppies, when they're very young, um, which makes them more adaptable and flexible and calm and less stressed in new settings. And the 
the way they handled them, they had a, a procedure for various handlings. In some cases, they were all cases where they wouldn't ordinarily find themselves in these positions. So they were little challenges to the puppy physiology. Um, for one, they would hold the puppy's head up and their legs are kind of dangling down on either side of the palm and they would tickle the bottom of their feet. And another, they're held kind of like vertically upside down um, or as though they're like skydiving, um, you know, head first, going from a higher to a lower place. And all these little challenges, which were done in safe environments, being cradled by human hands, were intended to kind of prepare the puppy body for the next things that are going to happen to them. And it turned out it really does have some um, health effect and makes them less stressed in novel settings. So by the time a listener who may have adopted a puppy, whether it's between eight and 10 weeks or many of us, uh, we get the older uh, puppies or adolescent dogs uh, from shelters, you know, that time that we're trying to develop a relationship with a dog. But when we think about early development, you know, part of that is, is also um, leading into their personality. And so how do we shape them later on in their adolescence, if at all? Oh, they are continually shapeable, for sure. But that early shaping happens in what's called the socialization period, which starts about four weeks. And it does continue until after we have adopted them. So they're still in this period of really receptivity to all things. And that's the time when they can be exposed to the types of things they're going to encounter in their life and meet with them agreeably. So new people, cats, uh, other pets, sheep, horses, things they're likely to encounter in your environment, different sounds. You know, I live with dogs in the city. So sounds of New York City, uh, the sounds of car doors slamming or alarms or a siren, um, all the different smells. You can expose them to those things. And this is the case to your question after we adopt them that helps them just deal with them better later in life and not develop some of the anxieties or reactivity that we see in so many dogs today. Uh, one of my um, former rescues who's no longer with us, he never got used to the vacuum cleaner, Alexandra. <laughs> mm, mm. I think the vacuum cleaner is a special terror. Yeah, it's not just a sound, it's also a vibration, right? And they are living on on the floor. And so the whole environment is suddenly transformed. Yeah. And as you say, they sometimes never do get used to it. But if you have something you really need them to be okay around, there definitely is, uh, there are programs of, of conditioning to make them accustomed to it little tiny steps at a time. And usually that will work through their whole life. You're hearing Alexandra Horowitz here, Where We Live. She's the author of this latest book, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. Uh, she writes uh, through a scientific lens about uh, the early development of puppies and how their personalities uh, come to be. Uh, she also writes about how she adopted a puppy uh, who we'll learn about in just a little bit. But you can join us, too. Tell us about that moment uh, that your dog entered your life and how you've seen uh, your family change. Find us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, we asked our listeners what they treasure most about their canine companions. Kenzie tweeted her intelligence and desire to connect with every person she sees. Vivian writes 
Her dog lives her best life every day. She loves to be outside. And John, his producer Katie's dad, tweeted, His puggle Ollie is always happy when I return home, regardless of that time apart. It feels good to have a dog, Alexandra. Yeah, and I I love all of those sentiments. In some ways, they, in my life, are models for how to be, right? That pleasure, you know, uh, sort of regular optimism, even if something hasn't gone well, ability to recover from it, right? The delight at greeting every time. In fact, sometimes I think that greeting would be so alarming if another person gave me that level of exuberance when I returned home. (laughs) But to be able to muster it up is so charming or to stare at you as intently as our dogs stare at us (laughs) (laughs) exactly the attention they pay to us is formidable and impressive and sometimes not the type of attention that we want but attention that we often don't get from even people we hope to get it from you write in your book and i'd mentioned this that dogs are cutest at eight weeks old what is it about them (laughs) at that at that point in their lives (laughs) I, you know, there's a combination of things that happen when we domesticated dogs over the tens of thousands of years, we have in essence shaped them to look like um, the things that appeal to us. Um, And this is why we have such a great diversity of shapes um, and faces, for instance, of dogs. So you have very long nosed dogs and you also have really short nosed dogs. And it looks like the puppies especially of all breeds you know every puppy is born looking like a little pug basically with a tiny little nose um kind of mirror what a newborn child looks like in that they have very big eyes relative to their head they have big heads relative to their bodies they have broad foreheads they have small little noses big cheeks and this when we see children induces in us um a response of uh wanting to take responsibility and 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 wanting to take care of that uh, individual. And that's a useful response, you know, when it comes to children because they need taken care of. And it turns out that dogs have kind of hijacked that response in us. And we also feel that way when we see them. So we are susceptible to their cuteness. And it's also interesting the the time when puppies are adopted out to families between eight and ten weeks. So when we compare that to a human baby, you know, where is a puppy developmentally? Ha! Huh. It's funny because human babies and puppies start about the same. We're both altricial, meaning we come out with very little that we can do on our own. We're completely dependent on a parent. Um, and puppies, as I say, are blind and deaf and can't really move except for sucking. Um, But then they develop really rapidly. Their eyes open less than a week later, their ear canals open, they start running around by three or four weeks. They're running, jumping, climbing, tumbling, start to follow each other. By eight weeks, you know, they're mini adults, essentially. By eight weeks, you know, a baby is is probably not holding up his head, right? So there are development as infants is a very, very slow one into adulthood and dogs, I think sometimes fool us into our thinking that they're fully adults because their bodies develop so, so rapidly, relatively. Uh, You also, as I mentioned, adopt a dog (laughs) during the pandemic, like uh, so many of us did. So tell us about how you, um, again, this is part of the litter that you were following, the 11 puppy litter, um, but one of them becomes your puppy. So tell us about her. 
Yeah, she was um, what the foster mom who was taking care of tending to the the mom in the litter called a happy-go-lucky puppy. And I'm not entirely sure that I continue to agree with that, but she is resolutely cheery. Um, All the puppies, although their personalities had started to distinguish by eight or nine weeks when we got her, were were great dogs. You know, what can I say? They were all wonderful, cheery little sprites. But she was particularly up for everything, following every sound, pursuing other dogs, um, forging off on her own, exploring on her own. And we've seen these things continue and develop in her new environment and her home environment as well. She's uh, obsessed with little furry moving things, whether that's a tennis ball or a squirrel. And she's come to be a real snuggler, although she wasn't at the beginning. Um, So now she's essentially our family. At the time, she was a little bit of force of chaos. (laughs) And we have a picture of of this puppy on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Alexandra, could you read a portion of your book, The Year of the Puppy? Uh, We'd love to hear the excerpt about how we name our dogs, starting at page 105. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So this is um, before we get her, but we know we know she's coming. So we sit around as a family, my husband and son and I, and um, decide decide on our name. We name our children and our pets in order to start them off with a part of us in them. Their names are rarely arbitrary. They're named after relatives, admired or beloved people, authors and hockey stars and favorite book characters. Sure, a dog is more likely to be named Peanut or Bear than a child is, but the intent is not so different. The name must suit them, whether it matches who they seem to be now or who we hope they will become. Our final round has M-Dash, Squall, and Quid, another of my son's suggestions. We have one last vote apiece. My husband and I converge on a name and M-Dash wins, The moment of the choice, I look at them both with anticipation. Do we just begin to meet our puppy? We agree to sleep on it. In the morning, we list the pros and cons of each name and bring back any names that might have haunted our dreams with their aptness. This is a word we are going to be saying thousands of times, I remind us. Maybe a thousand times in the first week alone. We ought to make it something we are happy to say out loud. A lot. On this reckoning, quid wins with quiddity as the full name. The word means the essence of a thing, a thing's thingness. The common element of all the puppies is how perfectly puppy they all are. This time we all nod agreement, it's quid. The click of the name into place makes it real. A puppy named quid is about to come home. A name feels like the first step in making her a good, happy dog, circumscribing the kind of dog she can be. At the same time, I know this is a conceit, the notion that by naming them, we somehow command who they will be. Puppies are a force of nature, like thunderstorms, uncontrollable, only observable from a safe or unsafe distance. I know this, but I need to put away this understanding for just long enough to bring the puppy home. Now we just need to get her. Quid does not even know we're coming. 
You're hearing Alexander Horowitz here where we live, reading from her book, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. I laughed out loud uh, at part of uh, this excerpt because when we, we got our rescue years ago, we were living in Florida, and we were trying to come up with a name for him. And my husband's like, how about Sydney? I thought, oh, that's a great name. Come to find out he named our dog after Sydney Crosby, the Penn's mm. NHL hockey player. <laughs> so it spoke to me, Alexander. <laughs> and by then it was too late. It was Sydney. <laughs> well, they can always be Sydney, whoever for you. Yeah. I, you know, I think the naming of dogs has become very much like the naming of babies insofar as we do want to attach some meaning something personal about us to that pup even before we know who they are as a and i think it's a, a nice way of kind of entering them into the family for for many who have adopted uh, dogs uh, from shelters or from rescues and um, they may have names already attached mm -hmm. to them is it recommended to rename your puppy you know to start mm -hmm. this new chapter alexander yeah, often the names given are given by shelters, which is part of, you know, trying to capture part of their personality or just um, add something appealing so that people look again at that dog and give them a chance. But I think if they're not already completely responsive to that name, absolutely name them something that works for you and that you want to say. Um, sometimes it does suit them, right? And people keep that name, but they can learn a new name readily. Mm. I have heard that it's when you think about the name of a dog that you know maybe you can stick with uh, two syllables. And when we think about how dogs respond to us, is there science backing that up, Alexandra, <laughs> when it comes to behavior no, and cognition? There should be science about that, Lucy, but there <laughs> is not. Um, but there are people who have looked at related things. Uh, Patricia McConnell, who's a great author uh, and trainer, has written about dogs. Taught, discovered in research that uh, a rising tone makes it more likely for a dog to be responsive when you ask them to come. So imagine a name that's said with a rising tone versus one that's multi multiple syllables and said with a lowering tone. The former will probably be one the dog pays attention to a little bit better. So there are things like that, but I think and when I'm asked for recommendations, I just basically say it has to be something you're willing to shout out loud in a, in a park <laughs> multiple times. Um, and that's about it. Uh, they can even understand nicknames, right? Um, so whatever you name them is mostly about your willingness to um, say the word out loud. And dog, no, dog uh, oh, people who, who have dogs in their families know you can say their name doesn't mean they're going to come to you. That's <laughs> right. Also part of uh, yeah, the it's true. It's not always a and it can't always be used as a command. It should also be used uh, in uh, in nicer settings. Right. Again, uh, listeners can see Alexandra's dog quit on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Uh, my guest again is Professor Barnard College, head scientist at its Dog Cognition Lab. And we're talking about her latest book, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. We're going to learn more about her first year with Quid in her family and take your questions too. A listener emailed me and shared, quote, we just got our first puppy after 47 years of marriage the best thing we have done in a long time. We want to hear from you. Tell us about your dog or dogs and their time in your family. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, Director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. From sweet potatoes to loaves of bread to little bruisers, the shape of a puppy changes week by week as they grow and as their senses sharpen. Dog researcher Alexander Horowitz chronicles puppyhood in her latest book, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. She documents the social and cognitive milestones uh, seen in the litter of 11 puppies. One would go on to join her family of three humans, two large dogs, and one cat. The puppy is named Quid, short for Quiddity. How did a new puppy change your family? You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Alexandra, tell us tell us more about once Quid came home, how that connection between you and her grew. Yeah, it was such an interesting time for us because, well, it was the pandemic, uh, the beginning of the pandemic. We had decided once everything shut down in, in March of 2020 that, oh, it was going to be one of the puppies of this litter who we adopted, which hadn't previously been obvious. And uh, so we were around each other all the time, right? So what a, what better time to have someone come in your home and really get to know the way of the family? Well, what you forget when you adopt a puppy is that the puppy has no idea what's coming, right? So even She knew nothing of this kind of circumstance. She had been exposed to lots of things, but never um, asked to live in a human home like our other dogs, kind of professional dogs at that point in their life, 12 years old, lived in our home. So she was really a force of chaos. And I have to say, I did, it was really disruptive right away. It really changed everybody's dynamic with each other. It changes the nature of the space you're in, you know, when we were all living in in a very small house and suddenly everything is potentially something she could put in her mouth or chew or jump on or urinate on. And so it took a long time for me, especially, I think, because of the way I was scrutinizing her to really come to um, appreciate the addition of this puppy to our home. My husband and son, on the other hand, just loved her right away. You know, they, she was an adorable puppy, acting like a puppy does, and they, they appreciated that. And I was very measured about my response to her. What about uh, your other uh, pet family members and how they responded to Quid? Yeah, we have these had these two older dogs who have both since passed, sadly, Finnegan and Upton. Um, Finn's been in all of my books, right? He's really... 
he's just really a lovely, lovely, lovely character. And they really uh, wouldn't look at the puppy for weeks, right? They just wouldn't give her the time of day at all. Uh, they knew exactly what was happening here. An intruder was coming in and they were not responsive. But then they turned and started to play with her. And uh, they realized that when she was around, we might have more little treats on our person. So they would come running whenever we called her, which helped her come running. Um, and it, it it was interesting to see the kind of rejuvenation that she could inspire. At the same time, they, you know, they seemed ever older because maybe, again, of that contrast. Um, and the cat who really loved the dogs, Edsel, um, was very interested in this new character because uh, of all the things that she was sort of more on the cat's level. But the puppy was not as um, careful with the cat as our older dogs are, right? And was it would be would play over rambunctiously and terrorize her a little bit. So she spent a lot of time out of the way or on a high perch for the first several months. You mentioned uh, your other dogs who were, were getting older or were elderly. I feel like that's something that um, many listeners who have dogs can understand uh, when you've had a dog through all these different life phases and uh, you're seeing them age and you know they're not going to be with us um, forever. And you bring in you know, this ball of energy and you see such the contrast. Uh, was that difficult for you? Do you think that was part of what took you longer to uh, grow into your relationship with Quid? Absolutely. Although I didn't see it at the time, I really only saw it retrospectively. You know, these I loved these other dogs. They were a part of our family. We understood each other. And it did seem at some level like a little bit of a betrayal to be turning our attention. And we needed to turn a lot of attention to this new newcomer. So I think that I was kind of reluctant to love her um, because... I had so much adoration and, and admiration for our older dogs. Again, you can join us as we talk about dogs, our relationships with them and how they change us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My guest, uh, dog cognition uh, researcher, scientist, Alexandra Horowitz, her new book, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. Uh, she really uh, helps readers understand uh, the early development of, of puppies before they're adopted and join our families. Were there some things, because you're a dog expert, Alexandra, were there some things things about Quid that you were very clued in and, and the things that you weren't expecting. Can you tell us more about her? Yeah, one thing that I certainly saw when she was living with a litter of, uh, you know, 10 siblings and her mom and the foster who took care of them also had several dogs, I think at least eight, um, as well as a bird and several cats. Um, one thing I saw at that time was they were, it was very noisy, right? With that number of animals, you do expect um, a lot of noise in the house and outside the house. And she came in as a little barker. Um, and I was highly alert to this, right? Barking is just using your voice. It's a way of commu dogs communicate, but it's really frowned upon in a city environment to have a dog who's barking at all because we're just all you know, clogged up next to each other. And I'd hoped that she would be living in a city environment. So I was kind of hyper aware of this. And it's very, very tough to 
train a dog not to, to be quiet, right? As opposed to using a bark to announce that there's someone at the door or to try to get attention. Um, so I was alert to that in the way that maybe the rest of my family wasn't so concerned about um, because I see all these early behaviors as harbingers of more to come. Mm. Uh, when we think about what dogs bring to our lives, right? They're so joyful and uh, we love them so much, but you know, some would say, well, dogs don't really love us back. Mm. What does the research tell us about their emotions, Alexandra? Well, they absolutely have a large range of the emotions that we have, they might not experience them just like we do, but they have the physiological response, the behavioral and bodily response, the brain response that mirrors our brain responses in different emotional states. Um, love itself is a ponderous one and, and something that scientists haven't been really ready to talk about until the last several years, because it seems like an anthropomorphism. We think, oh, that's just a thing that's a human trait, uh, that we feel love for other people or other things. And we can't assume that animals have the same experience. At the same time, because it's an anthropomorphism doesn't mean that it's wrong necessarily. And if you do look at their types of behaviors, like um, they're bonding to a person uh, that's a real attachment, like just like we talk about with attachment in infants, um, where they experience separation anxiety when separated from that person. Um, that's a sort of sign of love. Their greeting behavior, which is, you know, manifestly demonstrative of affection, that seems to me a sign of love. So I think that there is science that supports it and it, the question is whether you want to call it affection or whether you want to call it love like human love. You know, it's not experienced in the same way. They have different brain. They have different, they, they don't exist in a verbal world, for instance. But the attachment and the uh, concern about and wanting to be near is the same as in any love relationship. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as we talk with Alexander Horowitz, author of the new book, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. You mentioned that you got quid uh, during the pandemic. Uh, I adopted Wally, uh, formerly known as Skipper, mm -hmm. in February 2020. Then the pandemic happened. And then we had this brilliant idea to have another get another dog in December of 2020 <laughs> and we adopted Luna who used to be Sarah Lee from Texas and so I'm wondering if you can talk more about you know in this pandemic especially how um, you know people seemed more in tune with uh, their pets but now that you know things are returning people are going back to work you know how that has impacted uh, dogs or even our relationships with our new pets I think it's a testament to the fact that people were reminded of or recognizing the importance of these creatures in our lives that at the time when we felt, uh oh, we're not going to really be able to see social others, see other people. Um, we all wanted to, so many of us wanted to add um, a dog to our lives. Um, and in fact, I think they were great uh, health givers to us, right? Even if Quid or other puppies had phases of being disruptive. Overall, they're great, great, great companions. And all dog professionals were worried when this was happening that a bunch of people would get dogs for for the right reasons. But then when it wasn't convenient anymore, sort of when things returned to this 
ostensible normal that we kept talking about, that then the dogs would be abandoned. Um, and that has not happened wonderfully, right? There still are lots of people who abandon their dogs or return them to shelter or breeder, but not at, at higher rates than before. But what has happened is that you do have a lot of dogs who are unprepared for the situations in which they're now being put. Typically, you would prepare your dog for being alone by themselves for hours, for instance, um, by giving doing it through baby steps, being away for five minutes, then 10, then 30, then an hour, and you know, making sure the dog has something to do. But we were around them all the time, um, you know, nearly constantly. And so then as uh, asking a two-year-old dog or two-and-a-half-year-old dog to suddenly be okay with being alone by themselves for several hours, that's too big an ask, right? They don't know what's happening. They don't know if you're ever coming back. So we, you know, have to do a lot of remedial work and trainers are really great resources for this to try to get them accustomed to the things which previously the dogs in our culture were typically doing. Um, but I do think that also workplaces are opening up a little bit more with flexibility, which allows for sometimes having a dog come into the office or people staying home a couple of days a week. And that that does turn out to be really useful for this budding relationship. Mm -hmm. If you adopted a pandemic pup, we'd love to hear about them. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, when we think about, um, again, how dogs are observing us all the time, you write in your book that humans may ask, what does a dog know about us? How do you answer that question? <laughs> so many people want to know what their dogs know about them, maybe sort of secret information. And I do consider dogs a little bit of anthropologists um, of us because they are really observing us all the time and they and they do wind up knowing things which we aren't telling them, right? They know the difference between my getting up from my chair to go to the fridge or getting up to take them for a walk without my saying anything because they're able to read little differences in our behavior. Um, so there are a lot of subtle things like that, but then there are even more major things and there have been um, cases that now date back to the 70s where, um, and now are more widely known and researched, where dogs, um, uh, untrained dogs were sniffing a part of uh, their owner's body uh, again and again and again, like a leg in one case. And eventually the person took it to the doctor and said, is there something going on there? And the dog had discovered a melanoma. So because of their olfactory acuity, they actually are attentive to when the smell of us, cancer has a smell, changes. And these dogs had essentially detected the cancer. And in, in, in one case, it was early enough for it to be removed and the person to recover. So they also do know when there's something different about our health. They can smell that. Um, they know when there's they can experience and sometimes get a contagious reaction of, of stress high levels of stress on our part. So they're very sensitive observers to us. Um, and we just have to observe them to know when they've seen something. You're hearing Dr. Alexandra Horowitz again, who's written the book, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. She's a professor at Barnard College and head scientist at its Dog Cognition Lab. We'll continue talking with her after the break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking with the author of the book, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. Alexander Horowitz, again, is professor at Barnard College and head scientist at its Dog Cognition Lab. You can join us. Tell us about your pup. And if you have a question about a dog behaviors, Alexandra is a scientist uh, looking at just that, their cognition. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Alexandra, uh, Freddie tweeted, we just got a mail golden puppy we have an older female french bulldog that we that was never very good around other dogs and he writes it took not that long for the puppy and the adult to be great friends she does not mother him but they're wonderful together there is something to be said when you see your pets getting along with each other especially if there's an age difference yeah a familial relationship among Un, you know, otherwise unrelated dogs is, I think, very satisfying. And as that uh, listener observed, sometimes the older dog's um, personality can take on a new dimension a little bit with the introduction of this other dog into the household. I mean, they've been living with just biped, bipedal people all this time, and now here's another quadruped um, for them to interact with. And Although sometimes there is a bumpy start in that transition, it can bring out parts of them that um, you hadn't seen before. Again, your new book uh, focuses on puppyhood, but can we talk more about their adolescent period, when that starts and ends? I guess it depends on the breed of the dog. And you know, this is often the time, as you write, where people give up on the dog and it ends up back in a shelter. I think this is one of the most important things for people to realize when they uh, adopt or buy a dog is that we all talk about getting a puppy that we use puppy to mean any dog who's, I don't know, uh, a year up to a year or two old. But after about um, six months, varying by breed a little bit, as you say, they enter their adolescence, right? This is when um, they enter into sexual maturity or aim towards sexual maturity. And then they're in basically teenagerhood for maybe up to a year and a half. And what's important about acknowledging that is that even if your puppy has come smoothly into your household and has learned the things you need them to learn, and there's a great relationship budding between the pup and other members of the household, in adolescence, they might behave like adolescents sometimes behave. And we're never surprised when we see an adolescent child suddenly refuse to do the thing we asked them to do and they previously cooperatively did or give us a look and not respond to our question, right? But if we see a dog no longer sitting when we ask them to sit or not coming when called or just not being as interested as being at being pet. We all worry, oh no, right? Like this is not a good dog, right? This dog is disobeying. Not really, they're just going through a phase. They're going through that adolescent phase when they're still coming into themselves and learning what they can get away with and how the world works when they're functioning sort of on their own a little bit. So we should treat it as a phase. Unfortunately, because people see a lot of rebellious behavior in adolescent dogs, these are the ones that are often returned um, to shelters. And then it's more difficult to adopt them out the second time because they've lost that peak cuteness that we were talking about. So 
I think it's really important to, for people to realize that this is just a phase in their dog's life. And just as with a child, we know it's going to end and they're going to come out the other side of it. And hopefully our relationship is is actually even stronger then. There's a, a great, there's so many great quotes in your book, Alexandra. I, I wrote this one down. You write, I wish there were training books for new dog people entitled Perfect Person in Seven Days. <laughs> <laughs> Speaks to the unrealistic expectation that, you know, we can train our, all these behaviors out of a dog, but we're missing, you know, what makes them their personality, what makes them who they are. And like, isn't that also part of the reason you wrote this book in terms of, you know, not how we try to, um, you know, force certain training or behaviors on a dog, but, you know, observing more about the dog and how they change us? Yeah, absolutely. I think culturally we come with this idea that dogs are supposed to behave a certain way. And so when you get a dog to equip yourself for that dog, you basically, you know, get a training book and teach them several commands get a crate and teach them to be comfortable in the crate and then sort of you're done. And while some of those commands might be useful at times, the reason I think we like living with dogs is not because they sit when we ask them to put their rumps on the floor. And I don't think that's even that important. I think instead it's about knowing this new creature, right? Learning about the personality and the differences um, of this other species. So I think the that we kind of misconstrue what living with dogs should be about. And nobody tells me when they tell when I meet somebody with their eight-year-old dog, nobody says, you know, this what I love about this dog, they sit when I ask. They have <laughs> personality characteristics that they love. They have events that they've done together, things that have happened to them both that they love. They love the way they respond to the person when they're sitting on the couch together, right? It's not the commands that are important. It's the building a relationship that's important. Getting back to Quid, again, the subject of your latest book, The Year of the Puppy. Uh, over the year over the year that you had her, that first year, you are able to see her for who she is. What is your relationship with Quid today? It's better. It's a lot better. I mean, I think I do come to appreciate her more over that course of that year. And um, the following year, when she was two, we lost first Finnegan and then Upton, which was a big blow for everyone in the family, quit included. In some ways, it made it even easier to see her for who she is and appreciate um, just the type of character that she is and how she's responsed responsive to us so now we have a total she's a total charmer um is still pretty cute even though she's way past her peak has her obsessions and and things she does that i don't like and i'm sure i have things <laughs> i do that she doesn't like but she's absolutely a member of the family now it's great to hear how have readers responded to your latest book alexandra i think there were so many people who have you know, had almost parallel experiences during this time. And I've heard from a lot of people who appreciate, actually, you know, this wasn't what I intended to do, but appreciate my acknowledgement that sometimes the, the love for the dog doesn't come instantly, right? That it's difficult to be patient in the first several weeks or months of living together when they're not cooperative and they don't know how the world works. Um, even, but we had the expectation that 
they would be easy additions to our lives. Um, so I, I think that acknowledgement that I make, um, you know, as a dog scientist is nice for people to hear who have maybe thought that they are doing something wrong. You know, they're not doing something wrong. Their puppy isn't a bad puppy. It's, it is just that we get handed a dog without really being prepared for what's going to happen. Um, and I also heard a lot of people who didn't know about, you know, puppy teenagerhood or adolescence. And that also helps them feel better about the fact that suddenly their dog is seeming rebellious and they're worried about what that bodes for the future. And to see it as a phase um, helps them a lot. So that and a lot of people now recognize quit on the street. That's the final <laughs> thing that's happened as a result of this book. She's very recognizable. So she gets um, identified. Yeah, she's beautiful. And, and what a pleasure to have you for the hour of the lovely book. Thank you so much, Alexander Horowitz, again, author of The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. She's also head scientist at Barnard College's Dog Cognition Lab. Thank you, Alexandra. Thanks so much, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs>